Here we are in, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, and, and uh, I'm looking forward to working our way through John. I have never taught through John, uh, and even though I've read it and I've studied it for years and years and years, and just now three weeks in, into it, studying it at, a, at a depth required to teach it, and to teach it thoroughly and faithfully and, and all that's required of me before God... I'm finding it richer than I ever thought I would find it. Uh, it's, it is, and I hope you'll see it that way too. Last, last Sunday, uh, we finished what is commonly referred to as the prologue to John's gospel. The prologue, that's verses 1 through 18, where more than anything, John is sort of just introducing the book, introducing themes that he's going to flesh out more later on in the book. And so you have key words or key ideas that he is, you know, he, he referred to, the word or uh, the light was coming into the world. And you know, in John chapter 8, Jesus is going to say, I'm the light of the world. And that's going to be a bigger theme later on. Um, that's, that was mostly the prologue. But today we're picking up where we left off last week uh, in verse 19. And we're going to think through verse 34. Uh, chapter uh, 1 verses 19 through the end of the chapter covers a four-day period. A four-day period in the life of uh, John the Baptist transitioning to Jesus is now on the scene, and and uh, and 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 you can see you can see day one is is verses nineteen through uh, twenty eight, and that's that's one day where you have the ministry of John the Baptist, but then it transitions to day two in verse twenty nine through thirty four to um, Jesus is now on the scene. He comes to be baptized by John, and then on day three beginning in verse 35 through 42, you have uh, two of John's disciples now transfer their allegiance from John the Baptist to Jesus. And then in uh, verses 43 to the end of the chapter, you have uh, day four where he calls yet more disciples before he performs his first miracle in chapter two or as a sign as John calls them. You can tell uh, the, that these these four days were important if, if John spends a whole chapter on just these four days. Now, you know, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you'll know that he's flying through the, through the ministry of Jesus, but he gets long around chapter 13, and he puts on the breaks, and the last half of the book is about one week of Jesus' life, that last week of Jesus' life. But you have that same kind of phenomenon here at the beginning, where in a minute he's going to pick up and move warp speed, For right now he's focusing on these first four days of Jesus coming on the scene. And you can tell he's doing that because, uh, like if you, if you notice how verse 29 begins with this phrase, the next day he saw Jesus coming. And then verse 35, the next day again John was standing. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. These were important days. And so we need to, we need to dive in deep and say, why were these four days? What is John wanting us to know about these, these days? And we're going to think about the first two of those days uh, today, in verses 19 through 34. The testimony of John the Baptist and the appearance of Jesus Christ. So if you found that place in your Bible, let's read our passage together. So follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews and, uh, had sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
<laughs> It'd be very frustrating to talk to. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, this, this that we just read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask that you would, as we come humbly to it, uh, not presumptive over it, but with listening ears, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth in these verses. Would you give us minds to understand what John, through the inspiring uh, power of the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate to us would you give us hearts to embrace the truth that we see here and love it and to care would you give us wills to obey whatever it is that you call us to do give us ears to hear give me the help that I need to teach I pray in Jesus name amen okay I'm not gonna lie there is way more in these verses than I um, than 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 I'm gonna be able to bring out to you today uh, John John knew who he was writing to. He knew that he was writing to people who were going to be so deeply steeped in the Old Testament uh, that he just knew they would pick up on things without broad explanation that, that we struggle to grasp uh, if we're not that familiar with the Old Testament. So if I could just pause right here for a quick commercial. It would be, let me just stress to you how incredibly important it is for you to know and be thoroughly acquainted with the Old Testament. Uh, to, to know the basic storyline of the Old Testament. To know the main themes of it. The, 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 the people, the places, the events, the covenants, the promises. All of it. Just, just be deeply steeped in the Old Testament. And the only way you can do that is by consistently reading it. Read, 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 read. Don't, don't, don't just read the Old Testament, but I promise you, if you only stick to the New Testament and you never read the Old Testament, you will not see all that there is to see in the New Testament. You must know the Old Testament. And today, it, today's passage is a perfect example of that. So um, it, it pretty obviously divides up into two, um, two basic parts. Verses 19 through 28 is the testimony of John the Baptist and, and his preaching. And his interactions with those sent by the Pharisees. 
so we'll think about that when the priests and Levites come to him. And what, we, what can we learn from their questions and from John's answers? And then verses 29 through 34, is, we'll think about the appearance of Jesus Christ on the next day. This is where John packs so much truth, drawing on the Old Testament, finishing, weaving a fabric that the Old Testament began for us. So that when you put it all together, you have this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ showing now that he had come who he is and what he was coming to do. So it's passages like this one that, that when we see what John does here, it just, it, if, yeah, if the Lord answers our prayer and he gives us eyes to see and minds to understand and hearts to embrace and wills to obey, if he'll do that for us, which I know he desires to do, when we come to, we're going to see, uh, it, it should leave us just confident in Christ and confident in the, in the scriptures that reveal him to us and point us to him. So that's, that's my aim this morning. So let's dive in and think first about day one and the testimony of John the Baptist beginning in verse 19. So first of all, John the Baptist had to have been a big deal in his day uh, because uh, somebody, somebody that would have been that, that charismatic or that important or that intriguing that, that people were almost irresistibly drawn to go out and to hear him. Go out and to see him with their own eyes. How do we know that? Well, if you look down in verse 28, first of all, uh, it tells us, the Apostle John tells us that John's ministry here took place in Bethany across the Jordan. In other words, this was a place that in, in the other Gospels was described as a wilderness. This was not on the way to anywhere. He was out in the middle of nowhere about 25 miles outside of Jerusalem. And one commentator said, if you, if you tried to, to this very day, if you tried to drive from Jerusalem to where that's describing, it would still be a 40-minute drive. A 40-minute drive. And these people were going out to him on foot, going out to him riding some sort of animal. And it would, it would have been a very, very difficult journey and a very, very long one. But they were packing up in droves to go see and to go hear this man, what he had to say. And not just a few people. It's not here in... In John, but Matthew tells us that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Tons of people were going to hear him. That's a lot of people. And, the, and John the Baptist was a significant character, as we'll see in just a minute, for obvious reasons for, to, to people who are familiar with their Bibles. But it's in this context of droves of people going miles and miles and miles out to, to, to see and hear John the Baptist preaching and to see him baptizing, that we're told in verse 19 that a group of priests and Levites uh, were sent to John. Verse 19 tells us the Jews sent them, but, but the Apostle John will tell us down in verse 24 that it was specifically the Pharisees who sent these priests and Levites. Now, just to make sure we're covering all our bases, the Pharisees, he felt it important to say it wasn't just the Jews, it was specifically the Pharisees who sent uh, these guys to ask John the question, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were one of two main groups of, of leaders among the Jews in that day. You had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. The Sadducees just quickly tended to be the more wealthy and politically, uh, po politically uh, minded and politically connected, influential. Uh, the Sadducees were that. And they, they uh, were more theologically liberal. They denied it. They denied uh, most of the scriptures, they only held to the first five books of the Bible. They denied the inspiration of any, 
any, uh, any of the rest of it. Uh, they had some weird beliefs as a result of that. They didn't believe in a, in a resurrection from the dead. So that's the Sadducees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, the, the guys who sent these guys to, to, to question John, they were not always uh, the most wealthy in society, but they tended to hold much more influence religiously over the Jews. Uh, they, were the, they were conservative theologically, and they held a deep, deep reverence for the Bible. They studied it. They memorized it. In fact, there was a, they memorized Scripture so much. There was, it's, it's, it's apocryphal, but it was a, uh, uh, it was a saying then that the, they knew the Bible so well that you could take a Bible and drive a nail through the Bible and they could tell you every word that it pierced. Like they knew the Scriptures that well. In fact, Jesus would allude to their their love for the Scriptures and their knowledge of the Scriptures later in John chapter 5 when he told, he told them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, they studied Scripture for Scripture's sake and they missed the main point of it all. But they knew the Bible. They knew it. And they prided themselves on the knowledge of the law uh, and their strict obedience to it, at least in their minds they were strictly obedient, Every facet of it, every facet of life. In fact, Jesus would tell them in one of the other Gospels, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. So they were so scrupulous about obeying whatever, they could, whatever command they could find. They say, well, it tells us to tithe, so I don't just need to tithe my income. I need to go into my spice cabinet and measure out a tenth of my dill and a tenth of my mint and a tenth of my cumin, and I even give that. They were so scrupulous to obedience. Why were they like this? Bigger picture. The, they were still living under Roman rule. The Jews were still living under Roman rule uh, in that day. And they felt like the fact that we are not a free people, that the fact that we are still under the thumb of the Romans means that God's judgment and his disfavor is still on us. And this is the consequence of our unfaithfulness to the Lord. And they felt like, uh, yeah, like I just said, that that's owing to not just there, but Israel's as a whole disobedience to the details of the law to be obedient to it and so they said the way to fix this is to be super zealous about obedience and they would take the laws of God that were in scripture and they would sort of add their own laws to it they would say and they would almost build hedges around the law and so they would it would in order to make sure that they were being being obedient for example if the if the law said you are to rest on the sabbath well then they sat around and thought what constitutes work how do I know if I'm resting? So they just devised their own scheme that if you walk this far on the Sabbath, then you, you, it still counts as rest. But if you walk this far on the Sabbath, you've now worked. And so they add their own laws to it, laws upon laws upon laws, and they were relying on their own goodness and their own moral uprightness before God. And, and now they've caught wind, now they've caught wind that this there was a charismatic guy out in the wilderness across the Jordan preaching fiery sermons about repentance and about faith in a coming Messiah. And in, and, and in fact, the Messiah was here. And they had heard what he looked like, that he wore funny clothes even by that day's standards, and he ate funny food even by that day's standards, that he looked like Elijah in the Old Testament. As Mal and Malachi, the prophet, the last prophet before the New Testament, had prophesied that Elijah would come proclaiming the great day of the Lord when the Messiah would come. So they sent priests and Levites to John the Baptist to question him. 
And their basic questions were two. One, who are you? And two, why are you doing what you're doing? <laughs> uh, they kind of already have an idea. But like I tell if they knew the Bible that well that you could drive a nail through the Scriptures and they could tell you every word that it pierced, if even there's a hint of truth to that, they already kind of knew what they thought about the questions they were asking. Uh, so they're not totally innocent questions, but they want to hear from him straight on. So from his own mouth. I do think it's interesting in this case that they don't come themselves. They send somebody else for them. Uh, we know from the other Gospels that this wasn't their only encounter with John the Baptist. But nevertheless, here they don't even do their own work. They care about looks and appearances. So the, the priests and the Levites come in verse 19 with the first question, Who are you? Who are you, John the Baptist? And look how the Apostle John uh, words John the Baptist's initial reply to this in verse 20. They said, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. What a strange way to say it. He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The Apostle John is showing by this awkward wording the vehemence with which John the Baptist was saying, I am not the Christ. I'm not him. And notice, that's not even specifically what they asked. They just said, who are you? They didn't say anything about the Christ, but John the Baptist knew what they were after. And he was saying, I'm not him. I'm not the Christ. He knew and the questioners knew that over the years in that day, there had been others who had come forward claiming to be the Christ. In fact, in, in, John, in Acts chapter 5, verse 36, we read, For before these days Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and out of all, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And even Jesus in Matthew 24, when he was talking about the fact that one day he was going to come a second time, he was even giving everybody a heads up that when I come again, this is going to happen all over again. People are going to come claiming to be somebody, claiming to be the Messiah. And he would tell them in Matthew 24, see, I've told you beforehand. So if they say, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. So the Pharisees, to their credit if they deserve any, they, they recognized that many had come already, according to Acts, claiming to be somebody, claiming to be um, the Christ. And so they were immediately skeptical about John the Baptist. But John, forthrightly, as strongly as he knew how, right off the bat, before they even mentioned the word Christ or Messiah, he said, I'm not him. I am not him. So uh, they follow up. Well, what then? Who are you? Are you Elijah? Was that John knew that they were skeptical, and 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 what they weren't even uh, they weren't he wasn't even he wasn't even talking to those who were behind the questions. He knew it. These are just guys sent from the the ones I'm really talking to. But so he didn't give them the answer he wanted. Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Now that might be confusing because it was just last week I think that we noticed that Jesus himself said about John the Baptist, he is the Elijah that Malachi prophesied would come. So Jesus said he is that guy. And now John the Baptist is saying, I'm not that guy. So what's he doing? I think John's playing dumb. I think he's playing dumb with these guys, and he's being hyper-literal with them. You're asking me, am I Elijah? No, I'm not Elijah. Elijah was caught up to heaven. I'm not him. 
And they followed up again in verse 21. Well, then are you the prophet? What prophet are they talking about? Not Elijah the prophet. I think they're going back even further than that. They knew that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and, and verses following, we read this. God was speaking through Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that uh, he will speak in my name, I myself will require of him. Are you that prophet? They ask him. Are you that prophet that Moses was talking about? To which John simply replies, no. Frustrating. All of this will be true of Jesus. All of this will be true of the Christ. He is that prophet, right? But John is clearly saying, I'm not him. And that is the, that is the remarkable thing about John the Baptist. His striking selflessness. So selfless and humility. He had scores of people. Scores of people coming out miles and miles to hear him and see him. I mean, you have, you have preachers and other speakers who get so full of themselves when people get dressed and ready in their air-conditioned homes and sit in their air-conditioned cars and drive in their fuel-efficient vehicles a few minutes to come and sit in an air-conditioned room and listen to them speak. Imagine if you knew that people had to make a two-day trip on foot to hear you out in the wilderness, the stinking hot wilderness. Easy to get proud. But even with that, his only message is, I'm not the guy you're looking for. I'm not him. And just look, if you're just looking grammatically at the text, notice all the no's and nots. The no's and nots. Look at the text. He, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. Are you the prophet? No. And in verse 27, I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. No, 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 not, 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 no. Get your eyes off of me. John the Baptist was obsessively focused on preparing people for and pointing people to the only one here who really mattered. And it was Jesus Christ. In fact, when the messengers from the Pharisees get nowhere with their first question of who are you, they move, and they move to their second question in verse 25, if you're not any of those things, then why in the world are you baptizing people? John never even answers that question. He doesn't say, he doesn't explain why he's baptizing people. He just starts proclaiming the fearsome holiness of the Christ and points people uh, to and urging people to repent before that one. I'm not even going to tell you why I'm baptizing. Let me tell you what he baptizes with. His winnowing fork is in his hand. So the baptism of John upon people's personal repentance and faith, that just symbolized the cleansing and the promise of the Holy Spirit that the Christ would give when he baptizes people upon repentance and faith in the Holy Spirit when he came. And John says he's knocking on the door. In fact, he's standing in your midst. We're plainly told in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. John knew this about them before they ever asked a question. They weren't merely curious. Uh, 
They were not open to reason from the Scriptures. There was an edge to their questions. They didn't want to believe, and so they didn't believe. So John the Baptist, I believe, is an example to us here of how to bear witness to Christ in a way that honors Christ here. First of all, he is humble throughout, and by that I don't mean weak. If you read the other, I mean, if you read him here and if you read the other Gospels, he was very strong toward them. He told them, you, he called them a brood of vipers in, in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, he, he, he does, it doesn't mean weak, but he, but he is humble. I mean, and what I mean by humble is he never made his interaction with them about his interaction with them. He never made uh, his focus on their response to him. He, he was not there to try to win an argument with them. In fact, his sole uh, focus was on their response to Christ, and therefore, no matter how many questions they asked him, he just kept holding Jesus out to them. And that's a, that's a, that is, a, that's, that is uh, the second thing, that he was unwaveringly Christ-focused. And that's what we ought to take away from John in our own witness. That is how we bear witness to Christ even to this day. Don't try to, don't try to win arguments. You, you can never argue someone into the kingdom of God. It, the, the Bible says the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. And so when, when you have... When you're sharing Christ with someone and, and they seem only to want to argue, what about this, what about this, what about this, what about this? You may not know all the answers to their questions, and you don't have to. You know the gospel. And so humbly, gently, but confidently keep pointing them to Jesus. I mean, the, the, the Pharisees had already rejected God's purpose for themselves, and so John knew they weren't going to believe, and yet that's still what he did. Just keep doing that. Keep pointing people to Jesus. That's John the Baptist. But the meat of this passage, the meat of it, what we need to, to think through in the time that we have left is what does this passage teach us about the appearance of Christ in verses 29 through 34? So let's think about the, the appearance of Christ. Our focus will be on those verses 29 to 34, but really the stage for our understanding uh, those verses has already been set by none other than the priests and Levites who had been sent to ask those questions from the Pharisees. Because those questions that they were asking of John the Baptist should have already gotten us thinking about why are they, why those questions? And if it's not about John, who might they be true of? And those questions uh, lead us to who is the Christ? Who, who is the Messiah going to be when he comes? And what was he going to do? And, and they wanted to know if, if, uh, if John was the, the Christ, that, that title and, and that person obviously has a deep, uh, rich history in the Old Testament. They wanted to know if he was the prophet, which like we already showed from Deuteronomy, has a deep background in the Old Testament and implications for what the Christ would do when he came. One thing we massively omitted, not by accident, but until now, is what, the, what John the Baptist did say in answer to their question, what do you say about yourself? And what did he say about it? It's, when, he, when he was asked the question, what do you say about yourself? He still didn't answer that one. He didn't even say what he says about himself. He quoted Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. What do you say about yourself? He thought, I'm the one, I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness, according to Isaiah chapter 40. Which, when he quoted that verse, that would have had huge implications huge implications in their minds uh, uh, of the hearers. More on that in a second. And then you have 
this little subtle, at least to us, comment at the very end of the passage here in John, in verse, in verse uh, well, it's, excuse me, not at the very end of the passage, but in verse 28, when he said, we've already made mention, all these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. We read that, and it means nothing to us. But when they would have first read that in that day, it would have had massive implications that I want us to see. All of the elements of this passage come together, and if I had to summarize it, I would summarize it this way, and it's a mouthful, okay? But all the elements of this passage come together to teach us unmistakably that Jesus, who was just now coming on the scene to be baptized by John, was none other than the Spirit-anointed Messiah promised in the Old Testament to come, and by His coming would bring about a new exodus, a new exodus that the old one in the Old Testament just faintly, faintly foreshadowed. And they would bring them into a new promised land, the one that in the Old Testament just faintly foreshadowed, and ultimately he would bring about the making of a new heaven and a new earth. That's all here. How is all of that in this tiny passage? Well, to get at it most easily... Let's think again about that answer that John the Baptist gave them when they said, what do you say about yourself? And he answers in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's an interesting way to answer because if it is true, if it is true that he is the fulfillment of that verse in Isaiah 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 3, then it follows that the Lord he is preparing the way for is the one described in the final chapters of the book of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, which he quoted. And the coming Messiah, the coming Messiah is described in the end of Isaiah as as the one bringing about all of those things that I mentioned, bringing about another exodus, which John, as well as the other gospels, were keen to show. John alludes to that reality of bringing about a a a new exodus when he twice mentions that at the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him. How how does the Spirit descending on Jesus and remaining on him mentioned not once but two times in this passage, so it's kind of important. How does that tell us anything about a new exodus? Well, when, when you have this language of the Spirit descending on the Christ, descending on him and remaining on him, Remember, John had already taken their their minds back to Isaiah. So when they see the Spirit descending, if they had eyes to see, their minds would go back to passages like Isaiah 61, where the coming Messiah prophesies, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That is Exodus language. That is Exodus language where where in the Old Testament the the captives, the slaves of Israel, were set free after 400 years of bondage. Jesus said, I'm coming to do that. I'm coming to set the captive free. And and interestingly, in Luke chapter 9, we're specifically told, very specifically told, that Jesus was about to accomplish another Exodus Here's what Luke 9, 31 says. This is at the, the transfiguration of Jesus. And, uh, and you got Moses and Elijah appearing there with Jesus. And, and they're talking to each other. And in Luke 9, 31, 
it tells us that they, Moses and Elijah, spoke of his departure, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's funny. He's about to accomplish a departure at Jerusalem? That Greek word translated departure there is the Greek word exodus. He was about to accomplish an exodus at Jerusalem. And the Old Testament exodus, if you think back to the Old Testament, they come out of slavery in Egypt, and, and, and after, the, after the wilderness wanderings for 40 years, where do, they, where do they go after those wanderings? They go into the promised land, right, under Joshua. And that, new, that entrance into a new promised land is hinted at here in that same verse, chapter 1, verse 28 in John. That, with that bit about where John was baptizing, which was where? In Bethany, where? Across the Jordan. Across the Jordan. Right to the spot where Joshua led the people across the river into the promised land. The fact that all of this was happening on that very spot would not have gone unnoticed. But what kind of new promised land was this going to be? What kind of new exodus was Jesus about to bring about? The key to both of those questions is found in John the Baptist's proclamation in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was what the Passover lambs were always pointing forward to. He would truly, and not just temporarily until the next year, He would truly, fully, and finally bear the sins of all who would ever believe. And in doing so, the new exodus that He was about to bring about is deliverance not from any earthly bondage, but from slavery to sins altogether. Forever and ever and ever. Here, against being set free from the penalty of sin, progressively being set up, set free from the power of sin, and one day fully and finally set free from the very presence of sin. That is a greater exodus than ever occurred in the Old Testament. And, and it's, it's that kind of deliverance into a new promised land. Where's this new promised land? It is Jesus Christ Himself. He is the promised land. He is the rest and the freedom that we find. He is our Redeemer, and He is our rest. He is the exodus. He is the promised land. And he's making all things new. Not only did the Spirit descend and remain on him, but verse 33 tells us, verse 33, this is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. So he gives the Spirit to all who believe. And the Spirit in us, that is, that is the mark that the new heavens and the new earth, no matter what it looks like right now around us, get your eyes off of that. The fact that all who believe have within themselves the Holy Spirit of God. That is proof that the new heavens and the new earth is beginning already. It's beginning already. Who by faith have the Holy Spirit making us increasingly into the likeness of Jesus. How can you say that? The Bible is a mirror image. Okay, be familiar with the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the, in the first creation, the Lord God made the place and then he made the people to fill it. In the new creation, he's beginning with the people, and then will finally, when Christ comes back, make the place to go with it. All of this, all of this in a few verses in John. And believe it or not, there's more than that here. Something had to be left on the cutting room floor. But this whole passage is centered on Jesus. 
And if it tells us to do anything, it is to marvel at him. Marvel at Jesus. Marvel at who he is. Marvel at what he's done. Marvel at the word of God for telling us these things in so rich a way. What a beautiful thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much for... Uh, for telling us this in such a compelling way. The Scriptures are so rich and so uh, complex a tapestry of truth that even the skeptics can't see all the details to be skeptical about. The truth of your Word goes deeper than all skepticism. gives us confidence not just in the Scriptures, but even more fundamentally in the Christ the Scriptures point us to. So I pray that we would turn our eyes on Jesus, be captivated by Him, by His majesty, by His glory, by His humility, and by what He has mercifully and graciously done for us who believe. I pray that our faith would be strengthened in Him today. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.